Australian Power podcast this week, we bring Valerie Farris and Jonathan Dayton, the directors of Ruby Sparks, to glorious life just by podding about them. Nicholas Winding Refn drives into the pod booth, drives into the pod booth to talk about Pusher with Richard Coyle. And as usual, there's more news, reviews and movie related daftness than you could shake a stick at. Although why you want to shake a stick at it is beyond me. Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast that hasn't lobbed a typewriter in Tom Hanks' general direction, mainly because they're very expensive and very difficult to throw. As ever, I'm joined by three people whom custom and a sternly worded letter from HR dictates I should call colleagues. First off, I'm joined by the best of the best the cream of the crop, a man who right now is wearing a sweater that can best be described as a funkular. It's Nick DeSimlian. I was actually going for Shoreditch Noel Edmonds. Um, <laughs> I, I take offence to that. I think a funkular a is hip, a good word. This is a very hip jumper. A funkular is how uh, Robert Prosky's character is described at the end of Gremlins 2. I've always liked that word as a result of that. Uh, next up, there must be a sale on DeSimlian's because we've got another one. Buy one, get one free. Uh, this one, of course, is our resident art house guru, a man so in love with independent cinema that he's the only person in the world who makes jokes about fast binders penis. It's Phil DeSimlian. <laughs> he's just staring at me, filled with hatred. No. no, no, I'm just doing this one silently. Oh, really? Yeah, Carl well, Theodore Dreher-like. <laughs> Look it up. Uh, and last but not least is the man who makes this podcast possible through the sheer power of his editing skills. That's skills with an S. It's the bouncy, flouncy, wonderful hunk of man that is Ali Plum. How are you? I'm well. I'm uh, grateful for the compliment. I will be uh, remembering it later on in my day and thinking, oh, what a oh, nice man Chris is. Bouncy, flouncy, hunk of man. Yeah. Mm. Uh, okay, let's kick things off old school with a dip into our mailbox. Uh, by the way, people who want uh, Helen O'Hara, who is a hunk of woman, uh, she's back next week from her Las Vegas Yosemite sojourn yes she is she is she is back part Yogi week. Bear part hangover <laughs> the sojourn comes to a conclusion I think this Friday so she'll be back in business I'd love week. to see a film called The Sojourn that'd be amazing get your man Dreher on it <laughs> yeah The Sojourn <laughs> um, why I, I don't know <laughs> it's, it's a nice I'd love, I want to hear people like asking, a French hangover two tickets for that Sojourn <laughs> um, alright at a man hire uh, responds to the big tune of the week by saying am I the only one who thinks a new Bond song Skyfall by Adele is pretty underwhelming what were your first thoughts hmm Nick I think it's quite nice but then I like Fewer Eyes Only which everyone else seems <laughs> to think is the worst most insipid thing ever no the, the worst most insipid Bond theme ever is uh, All Time High from Octopussy it's yeah I agree with that that is awful uh, we had them all on in the office we were listening to them all in chronological order and um, I think it's good when you compare it to the uh, the Jack White Alicia Keys one when it comes straight after it yeah it's dreadful <laughs> that is pretty bad that one it is pretty dreadful that's from uh, that's from an album I actually downloaded the other day uh, I bought it it's called Best of Bond uh, to coincide with the, uh, the, the, the put a lot of work into that. If you buy if you buy the deluxe version, you get twenty seven orchestral cues. Oh, you get twenty five orchestral cues plus KD Lang's Surrender and uh, Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang by Dionne Warwick. Right. So that so. version is called the bestest of Bond. <laughs> the bestest of Bond. Yeah, actually, uh, in the Adam and Joe version of Quantum of Solace theme tune would have worked better that, in that the movie. Amazing. Well, there are two to be fair. Are there? Joe, 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 Joe's is great. The the Suntime oh, Aquarius or whatever it is. Was that, was that what it was? Yeah, the unofficial title for Joe's was the Something of Boris. Something, <laughs> the of, something Boris. of Boris. That's it. Well, when I spoke to Joe for Attack the Block, he said that he played that for Steven Spielberg uh, on YouTube. <laughs> I think they were, he was over there. <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy said, "Oh, show show Steven some of the, some of your stuff." So they booted it up on YouTube, and he said it was it was Spielberg kind of laughed for the first twenty or thirty seconds. And then he had to watch the rest. He said it was an uncomfortable experience. I was a bit disappointed because I was hoping for some really crowbarred in rhymes for Skyfall. <laughs> she gets in crumble. Crumble. Because she doesn't. She wants to say crumble, but she says crumble. Have skyfall. I wanted yeah. Eiffel Tower or um, yeah. a Pieful. Eiffel Tower. Or yeah. I'm wearing the wrong shoes, so I might fall. Crumble does seem to feature quite prominently in the middle of the sort of second or third stanza. I think mm. one of our mm-hmm. contributors, Owen Williams, actually created a Skyfall Crumble double Owen Williams double as he's known (laughs) for the duration Uh, Skyfall Crumble which looked delicious um, had some form of of silver based garnish on top Um, (laughs) so that was nice I quite liked it I thought I think the lyrics are a bit my love will go on you know what I thought when I first heard the song uh, someone said it was a Diamonds Are Forever pastiche and it is if you sing Diamonds Are Forever you can sing along to the the first few, few bars but you know what I can't get it out of my head I know, uh, but that's so, yeah, I know. so that's the that's the 
I like it. I think it's very pleasant. Uh, yeah, I would describe it. As, I would describe it as pretty good, <laughs> enjoyable, quite pleasant. Yeah. I put on my avuncular jumper and I just I, I like to listen to and it. And you sway out to some some Adele. Spark the pipe up. That's like saying I love this track. It's going to get some serious playtime at Christmas. That's what uncles say. I think Paul Edworth has done a pretty solid job of building in a piano motif that's very Bondy. And I think when we come and sit down and watch Skyfall, it'll have had a couple of weeks to really root around in our brains and it's going gonna, it's gonna to work really well in the context of the, of the opening credits of the film, Yeah, which I guess is the job it's Absolutely. doing. So, Absolutely. well done, Adele. And the I, voice is great and the crumble is delicious. So the do crumble, try it. The crumble is Make gorgeous. it in your Thunder Bowl using your Spoon Raker. <laughs> I love that you had that written down. I've written that down. I've also written down we have all the time in the world okay. and nobody does grits better. Have you ever wanted to write the Bizarre column in the and Sun? Because time. this is pretty much what they do. All time pie. All time, that's good. Fork your eyes only. That's hard. Fork your eyes only. That sounds painful. That's dangerous. I don't want to do that. That's dangerous. Anyway, in conclusion, Adele, congratulations. <laughs> she doesn't need us to tell her that, though, does she? That was our review of uh, Skyfall, the song. Uh, our review of Skyfall the movie is coming up soonish I guess I'm not quite sure when the embargo is but we're seeing it on Friday night so next week next week's podcast we will blink once if we liked it blink <laughs> twice if we didn't so so listen out for that okay uh, at Champ Celluloid asks uh, having watched the amazing four hour Prometheus making of documentary what are your favourite DVD extras I always like subtitles <laughs> quite like those um yeah, shall I go first? Yeah, go on. Oh, here's just a few off the top of my head. The uh, in-character commentary on Spinal Tap, which if you haven't mm. heard it, commentaries can be a bit of a chore to get through. This, And especially when they're kind of doing it in-character ones can can be very hit and miss, but Spinal Tap doing it is just genius. Absolute genius. Yep. Um, Full Tilt Boogie, which is the making of for From Dust Till Dawn. Which is yeah, the film, I, the film I don't actually like that much, but um, I, I prefer the making of to the film. It's a very kind of candid... <laughs> behind the scenes stuff with Tarantino and Rodriguez and involves Tarantino trying to do a spit take which is you kind of have to see it I haven't seen it yet actually I've, I've, I've had it for ages uh, and this four hour Prometheus making up sounds better than the film as well it has to be said uh, I love the um, I've always loved the Phantom Menace documentary the, the beginning which charts the film in you know, huge chronological mm-hmm. detail there's really good extras actually on the upcoming E.T. Blu-ray which I was lucky enough to review in the, in the upcoming issue uh, it's an amazing onset documentary where you really see Steven Spielberg work and work with the kids and you know actually get to see him direct and see a side of him I've never seen before so I, I like that and also yeah the beginning just to chip in quickly once again sorry I've been watching the uh, Costa Botes Lord of the Rings making of documentaries which actually got mired in a lot of legal stuff so they weren't released for a very long time after they were made but they're actually on the extended edition Blu-rays and they're really good they're really kind of all access you get to see Peter Jackson having a strop over Boromir's bag and it's just people shouting at each other and it's really kind of unvarnished oh, wow. behind the scenes stuff so if you like Lord of the Rings mm. or even if you don't it sounds great yeah dig it out my favourite DVDs uh, when they have special features is you know the early stages of DVDs where it's said as a special with a DVD menu where you can choose your own scenes <laughs> those are my favourite mm-hmm. I still like reading those when I remember yeah this is maybe as old as, as I, I am like that too. I like that I love it when you can watch the film and then afterwards you can watch the trailer exactly for the, the film that you've just seen it's yeah. awesome it's all the best bits that's crazy um, having, having the trailer for the film <laughs> totally no, nuts I, I love Ben Stiller's um, extra on Mission Impossible 2 where he plays Tom Cruise's stunt double oh from the MTV Movie Awards exactly Tom Cruise and he, say, he says he sees himself not so much as a stunt double more as a stunt one bull <laughs> <laughs> and Tom Cruise just sort of being an idiot and it's very funny I like that one excellent stuff I gather Robert Rodriguez's 10 minute film schools are very good I haven't seen any of those do you recommend yeah they're pretty good Uh, one of them involves him teaching how to cook an omelette why would you need to learn to cook an omelette to make a film his whole thing is that he does everything and because it's all done at Troublemaker he will if it's a night shoot he will cook dinner for everyone himself yeah but this is a 10 minute film school like you can't spend 4 minutes (laughs) making omelettes Werner Herzog runs a a rogue film school in LA (laughs) and he doesn't accept applications from anyone this is true. This is true. I'd love to go on this, but sadly, no, no chance. Because he doesn't accept uh, applications from anyone who's involved with the film industry in any way. So he accepts, you know, if you're a cook or a novelist or something like that, and you have to make a film that gets you. And he he runs the school himself, funds it himself, and he he gets the applications, assesses the films, and then <laughs> invites people to come along for a weekend 
to learn how to direct films from Werner Herzog but his secret is that he doesn't teach you how to direct a film he, there's no camera he doesn't teach you anything about the filmmaking process he just sits and talks about books <laughs> I, would, I would love to go on that it'd be amazing so you need to go to Werner Herzog's book group yeah essentially that's what it is yeah maybe bring some Skyfall crumble and break the ice and in my mind there's a couple of bears who are doing that as well <laughs> just a couple of bears sitting there with car mode and a bear suit yeah <laughs> that'd be amazing is that our DVD extra I don't know uh, anyway moving on at Henry John Rich asks uh, what's your favourite film cameo very very simple Bill Murray Zombieland and Ned Beatty in one of my favourite films Network hold up sorry mm. I don't think Bill Murray is a cameo in Zombieland it is it's, it's not it a is. cameo implies someone who pops into the film and then pops out again not someone who's there for a whole 10 minutes his, his is a, a guest appearance there's a difference it's not a guest appearance it's a guest appearance <laughs> is, he credited? 10 is he credited no Therefore, it's a cameo. I'm uh, not saying that you know, non-credited is uh, is the only criteria for a cameo, but if you're not credited, then it's likely that you're a cameo. Likely. Yeah. But in this case, not. I but it say. is. I guess it's one of those terms that's just gradually become affixed to people that appear in a movie and aren't a part of the mainstream of that particular plot. And I don't I think know, Bill yeah. Murray fits into that category in this film, although you're right, it does become sort of part of the plot, and it is the best bit in the film. Um is it but there are, lot, there are lots of cameos that are part of the plot. I would, for example, consider, and I think this is the best one of them all, Alec Baldwin and Glengarry Glen Ross. Mm. I'd consider that to be a cameo. Yeah. However, he drives the plot. He sets a, he sets a film in motion. He does. And, and so does BT and Network, exactly. Yeah. So. I think a cameo is, is pretty much that. It's someone who comes into film, does something funny, and then buggers off. It could be one scene, it could be several scenes, or it could be one shot. Do you think Alec Baldwin's cameo is funny? Uh, it is funny, actually. It's it, really funny. It it's is. chilling, but it's also really funny. No, it's, I mean, it's like Ned Beatty's. I mean, they're so over the top in the sense that yeah. they are chilling and funny and melodramatic. The horrible thing is that a lot of people in the financial world started emulating what Alec Baldwin said. Yeah. <laughs> Just really, and they started quoting him and they started thinking that this guy, Blake, is the way this is the guy that they should live like. And it's it just, they've, they've misread the film, I would say, yeah. if they're thinking that. Um, I love, this is a weird one, but Casper the Friendly Ghost, or Casper the, the movie, has three astonishing characters cameos in it it has Clint Eastwood Dan Aykroyd and Mel Gibson all in the same film all doing one uh, Dan Aykroyd actually as dance for Ghostbusters in full Ghostbusters costume going and he comes out the uh, the house having just been scared by the ghost and says who are you going to call somebody else it's really really <laughs> funny and he cameos obviously in Temple of Doom as well he does yes possibly as Ray Stance's grandfather or something. <laughs> yes, what, what do you stand on um, a Danny Glover in Maverick type of cameo where it's a bit oh, it's a bit inside baseball it's great I love that the theme tune in the background very softly I love Justin Long's cameo in Zack and Miri which is otherwise I think pretty ordinary yep. when he plays oh, yes. gay porn star Brandon, Brandon and Ralph's, he's telling uh, Seth, uh, Seth Rogen Seth Rogen he's, Seth Rogen's asking he's like I'm in movies he's asking okay, what kind of movies and he goes well mostly with like male casts and he goes what like Glenn Gary Glenn Ross and he goes well, <laughs> more like Glenn and Gary he's <laughs> so Ross's needy cock <laughs> 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 um, I really like um, you talking about Brandon Routh uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world I love the cameo with Tom Jane and Clifton Collins Jr. That's as the terrific. vegan police that's fantastic and I watched Casino Royale last night the original Casino Royale is dreadful don't say Richard Branson <laughs> I'm not going to say Richard Branson I hate Richard Branson about the original Casino Royale which is filled with cameos and it's pretty dreadful but like for example John Huston turns up right at the very beginning as M and you don't see him again for the rest of the film and there's tons of stuff like that in that movie more director's cameos I love Peter Jackson's obviously in Lord of the Rings I think uh, Hot Fuzz uh, Chris once bought me a limited edition uh, Peter <laughs> Jackson as Corsair action figure from Return of the King I probably would pick his Fellowship of the Ring one where he eats a carrot in a, <laughs> in a bizarre way um, Spielberg and the Blues Brothers that's driving the plot isn't it yep uh, what Cameron about Crow in Minority Report what about Hitchcock do you have a favourite Hitchcock yeah probably Lifeboat which I think that's the, that's the one where he's on the diet advert right yeah yeah the magazine and I'm going to say Chuck Norris just because you know, oh Chuck in Dodgeball in Dodgeball oh, Lance Armstrong no actually that might be the best cameo of all time although I hear he's had, had a stripped he has had it. they might have to remove the scene <laughs> he has yeah. had his, his character um, Samuel L. Jackson at the end of out of sight that's a good one Michael Keaton in Ro Out of Sight oh yes Robbie yeah, the Robot in Gremlins can't talk about great cameos I'm talking about Stan Lee who has a, just a plethora of amazing cameos in Marvel movies my uh, favourite thing about The Amazing Spider-Man was his cameo in it genuinely yeah. blew me away I went whoa I'm suddenly really enjoying this film and then it stopped <laughs> oh that's a bit harsh no but genuinely I thought this is incredible and then the movie carried on yeah I agree with that and um, one last one I want to throw in there is uh, John Landis his movies are full of director cameos and probably the best one for director cameos is Into the Night his great love letter to LA with Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Fiverr has people in it like uh, Jonathan Demme Frank Oz is in it uh, 
Jim Henson's in it uh, answering the phone it's just filled with great great cameos speaking of Jim Henson what about Orson Welles in the Muppet movie I feel like I should mention last last one I promise is Marshall McLuhan in Annie Hall oh yeah because he lives the dream when you when you see Woody just step out of the queue in the cinema and then pull him out of the back <laughs> I genuinely you, you feel this visceral yes I wish that would happen in my life really I'll ask him pull him out and ask the question <laughs> I love every time but listen I love that question we could talk about that all day but sadly we don't have all day so we've got to move on uh, we also have to thank Paul Mitchell aka at Gaston Grimsdyke which is actually named Leslie Phillips character from Doctor and Clover that's a funny story for your children uh, he sent in a brilliant and kind of faintly terrifying caricature of the Empire podcast team fighting the battle sheep which is an obscure reference in the first place but uh, but thank you uh, yeah it all we're all very very flattered by it and it's all hanging on our collective wall because we all live in one big house uh, if you want to get in touch with us you can tweet us at at Empire Magazine using the hashtag hash Empire Podcast you can Facebook us on face Facebook or you can email us at podcast at empireonline.com that's the same email address you should use to enter our competitions last week's offered three lucky readers a chance to win a copy of Will Ferrell's Spanish language comedy here it comes Casa de Mi Padre that was okay that was, that was okay. pretty good yeah. that was alright uh, and the question rather fiendishly was in Spanish now this is where it really gets bad the question was of course ¿Quién es el director de El Reportero La Leyenda de Ron Burgundy that wasn't so good not think, so good that was more Italian I think it just did uh, that of course and apologies to our Spanish uh, speaking readers and uh, readers in general uh, that translated as who is the director of Anchorman The Legend of Ron Burgundy the answer is of course Adam McKay I don't know what that translates to in Spanish congratulations to Bill Boswell Mikel Monge and Hannah James this week we have two Blu-ray box sets of American Horror Story the hit US TV sensation to giveaway to stand a chance of winning simply tell us the name of the character played by Francis Conroy and if you google it you might see why send your answer your name and your postal address to podcast at empireonline.com coming up the week's movie news plus some special guests drop by for a chat Nicholas Winding Refn is, thanks of course to Drive, one of the hottest directors in the business but the great Dane first burst onto the scene with Pusher, the first part in an ultra-violent trilogy. Now he's produced the British remake and he popped in recently to talk all about it with the film star Richard Coyle. Yes, the guy who played the Welsh bloke out of Coupling. They were talking about Pusher, Winding Refn's new film Only God Forgives, in which he be teams with Ryan Gosling and loads more besides to Phil and Dan Jolin. So, Nicholas, you are allowed to swear on our podcast in case, in case yeah. you're still, <laughs> still feeling a little chasing. We are not the uh, BBC. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I never expected that would be such a uproar. Did you get in trouble with Bill Turnbull on uh, BBC Breakfast for Is that? Is that the did guy? He, he's the guy, I think, who's on the, he's the, the, couch, the, show. the couch. What mafia. happened? Did you swear on BBC well, Breakfast? Well, yeah. all right. <laughs> Before we go on, me and Carrie, the girls, and don't forget this is a family show, which, of course, like somebody flashing a red flag in front of my eyes <laughs> and uh, before us Sean had been what's the guy from Happy Mondays mm, Sean, Sean, Sean Ryder mm. and he was like talking about his gardening and I was like fucking hell <laughs> this is a reform character <laughs> yeah please <laughs> and then they were asking conventional questions and then when it came to me she's like how you know you're so good at making this this, these violent scenes action scenes how do you do it and I said, well, it's, you know, it's like fucking <laughs> and, <it was> like, <laughs> and Carrie went like oh my god and I god. thought there was a delay because they do that in America a lot there's a delay yeah. on things so he said oh I'm sure you want to apologize for that. oh I'm sorry I thought to him because I thought there was a yeah. delay on it they could just cut out of it yeah <laughs> no. But afterwards, terrible. it was so gloomy and oh, everywhere. God. And Gary was like, you can't say that. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> Bill Turnbull must have gone red, like a beetroot. He did. So he straight. did. And the look, on, the look on Carrie's face, in fairness, as well, if you watch it back, it is, quite, is quite a sight as well. Um, but apparently some, nobody had sweared in the BBC for 10 years. There you go. It's an anniversary of sorts. Yeah. Perfect. Hmm. Um... Guys, let's let's start by talking about your kind of respective involvements in Pusher, because <clears throat> Nicholas, you're on as a producer. Producers often just kind of take a bit of a backseat ride in, in a, especially if you know their own work being remade. Was that the case for you, or, or were you involved in a more kind of uh, nuts and bolts way in the in the, in the film? Uh, no, uh, I, I really wanted to stay 
out of it as much as possible. I felt that um, I'd made the movie once, three times. <laughs> so um, now that somebody else was going to do them, my my place was not to tell them how to do it, but to be helpful in any way yeah. if I was needed. Um, when Rupert Preston, the producer, approached me about remaking the film, him and I had worked together for like 14 years as a distributor, mm. but also as a producer because he produced my film Bronson. Yes. And was actually the one who came to me with the project. So we were very close both personally and professionally. And when he said, let's, let's do, I want to do a remake of your first film that he subsequently had distributed, I was like, right, what do you need from me? You know, and he says, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I'll just look, let me just find the writer and then you guys take it from there. So I had been working with um, a writer called Matthew Reed, who I felt would be a good choice to do the adaptation. And he did his adaptation and uh, Rupert liked it. And uh, I said, now go with God. and <laughs> Let me know when it's done. Go with God. <laughs> he, I noticed from from his IMDb page, he did some Miss Marples. Is that a connection? Is that just coincidence? Because obviously you did Miss Marple Nemesis. Yes, I is. actually did two Miss Marples because they fired the director of the first one and I took over. So I did two back to back. But I didn't want to be credited on the one I took over because they didn't want to reshoot the original week that they had done. And I really only took it over because I wanted to meet Tom Baker because he was my favorite Doctor Who, but they didn't want to bring him back. So I said, you know, fuck off. And um, I'm not putting my name on it, but, uh, oh, by the way, I don't want to read the script either. So they had to take me out for an expensive dinner each evening and tell me the next day scenes. I can't remember which one it was called. It was quite well written, I think. Well, I don't know, because I never read it. I met the writer, though. He was How do nice... you know that he directed that, if it's not credited? Wait. That's a good question. We spoke about Valhalla Rising a couple of years ago, yeah. and you mentioned it then. And I was a bit like, I've just seen Valhalla Rising, and I have seen Miss Marple, yeah. and I'm trying to find a thread. There is uh, no thread. Yeah. <laughs> it's called money. Right it's called yeah. money. The thread was yeah. called cash. Yeah, I was able course. to suck £70,000 out of ITV without them knowing it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> plus very expensive dinners. And a golden Dolce Gabbana phone. That's the thread. <laughs> that was the thread. That's the thread. <laughs> uh, but Matthew Reed was the original producer on Miss Marble, and he hired me when I was really down and out and needed the money. And I came over, and my wife didn't come because she went on Dancing with the Stars in Copenhagen. <laughs> so I was all alone living in Kilburn High Road, being really depressed. And Matt Matthew Reed then quit, and had gone over to work with the BBC so his wife took over and they really became my family over here when I was living over here doing the marbles which I did enjoy I very much enjoyed working with JLG McEwen I thought she was a wonderful experience and a wonderful actress and of course my you know if I wasn't married I would be living with Amanda Burton and I was able to meet Amanda Burton on <laughs> Nemesis who I just think is the world's well next to Christina Hendricks the world's sexiest woman <laughs> Um, and um, so when it got on to do the remake me and Matthew had gone on to do a lot of writing ideas and really wanted to work with him and I felt that he would be a perfect choice to do the Pusher remake Richard, I was wondering what's your familiarity with the original then? Did you deliberately study it? And, <laughs> no, uh, uh, quite the opposite okay, actually. Okay. I hadn't seen the original and uh, but obviously I was aware of it and aware of the the uh, esteem and the respect mm. with which it with which it's held, but um, I felt that you know, as Nicholas has said, we were making uh, this was a very different take on it, and mm. Uh, mm. I just didn't feel that watching it and you know you sort of absorb things by osmosis, and I didn't feel that having seen Kim Bodney giving that uh, mm. you know amazing performance, mm. I didn't feel it was going to help me. To have that on my back, you yeah. know, to try and make my own Frank independent of that. So I didn't watch it. Louise asked us not to watch it when we came closer to filming, but okay. so at that point it was sort of took the responsibility away from me, right? Because I felt it constantly on the, in the build-up to mm. shooting. It was like, should I just sit down and watch this? And 
Yeah. I was fighting it constantly, but and I didn't. And I'm, 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 I'm really glad that I didn't because I just don't think I could have done my job properly if I had. Do you think, as characters, very hypothetical, Frank and Driver would understand each other? I think there's a lot of similarities between those characters in some way. Um, Frank makes a lot of. Uh, I think Frank makes a lot Nicholas of naive and stupid decisions. <laughs> Nicholas is smiling. Uh, you know. He's trying. He's trying, yeah. It's, he's trying and, and trying to make the best out of a bad situation. He makes a lot of stupid and naive decisions, which I really liked about Frank. Uh, I think Driver, you know, probably makes a, a couple of silly decisions as well. Um, but he's a victim and he cannot recognise yeah. and differentiate. And I think that's interesting. I always find that interesting. It's yeah. when you stop having control of what point does that happen. And, you know, you are victim to the circumstances. And I guess cocaine doesn't help. <laughs> Did you? We were we were revisiting, and I don't mean this to sound clear, but we were revisiting a scene that I love in Human Traffic, and wondering maybe if that's a. What are you asking me? Did I take drugs and then go on camera? No, no, no not even slightly. We were oh, just no, wondering no. if we were wondering if maybe there was if that was uh, the character was maybe Frank, the younger years, perhaps. I like it. I like that thread of thinking. It's good. I hadn't thought of it, but uh, you might be right. You, I could definitely see that. I'm actually now going to blame Danny Dyer. Yeah. <laughs> it is ultimately for Frank's ultimate demise. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about the music and a, a phenomenal soundtrack and score by Orbital. How did that? How did that work on set? You got some some full on dancing scenes. <clears throat> were, you, were you using playback and? Yeah, uh, sometimes nothing at all. Really? <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah. you have silent to use disco. sound and sing yeah, the and sound, and we just had to like silent disco sometimes. Which is, uh, you know, you think you think acting is hard? <laughs> Try to dance a silent disco. <laughs> That's one of my bugbears. Club club scenes in movies, and and Pusher Pusher doesn't do this, but when uh, people are in a club and there's people dancing in the background and not in time to what's playing and then two people have a conversation and they're just talking normally and it's just like come yeah. on mm. you need people shouting yeah. it's actually quite hard it's a hard thing to do mm. um, yeah. so either I say well you just play the music for real yeah. and you deal with it afterwards mm. or you do the trick of you start with the music and then um, before anybody talks the music goes off and then people at least are in the beat and the the rhythm of things but it's a very hard thing to do and I always say extras are equally as important as the leads because if the actress look doesn't work (laughs) the lead's not going to work can we talk about um, your your next projects coming up as well? Because sure. we've uh, been looking at Grabbers and it looks, oh, yeah. it looks there's a lot amazing. of love for Grabbers. There I is think a lot of from love for from, from Empire guys. Who, yeah, who yeah. Damon, I saw uh, yeah. Damon. Uh, we were at Sundance with it, and uh, he was there. Yeah. He was. I think he's a big champion for our film. He really likes it, and mm. it's you know it's it's a great movie. I don't know if you know this, Nicholas, about this film we did called Grabbers. It's about uh, it's like um, imagine Jaws but set on an Irish holiday island. And I'm oh, like wow. a Roy Scheider character, and we're <laughs> invaded by uh, aliens. Oh, cool! And uh, this is a small island community, and we uh, <laughs> discover that they're allergic to alcohol. Oh, so we have to get very drunk to stay alive. And that's the basic uh, premise of the <laughs> film. Sounds like a typical <laughs> European art movie. Oh, yeah. 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 Anyway, so yeah, that sounds uh, great. It is fun. It's really fun. It's um, you know, it's it's kind of a feel good film, and uh, I'm very very proud of it. Yeah. And you're acting drunk. Let's just, just clear this, this uh, one up once and for Yeah, well, actually, my, we have a role reversal situation where I, I'm like the alcoholic washed-up island cop and this the new the, the girl from the big city, the teetotaler, comes to help. Right. And we have, a, like, a role reversal. I end up being... My journey is to sober up and, and, uh, and her journey is to get drunk for the very first time. Okay. Um, uh, so, yeah, there, but there, <laughs> there wasn't <laughs> any real drinking. Well, maybe I should say there was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There was offset, obviously. I mean, there's quite a lot. You're an island. Do you get any awesome sort of payoff lines, having seen off any of these aliens? Yeah, my my favourite of my lines was as I as I'm being uh, the tentacles of the 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 the, the mother alien grab me and she's trying to pull me into jaws and I've got a bottle of puccine. Uh, and just at the crucial moment, just before I'm eating, I, to- I pop the top off and I pour it in and then I go slantia and I throw the bottle in. <laughs> One oh, of those silly moments, but they're brilliant. Those they're the things you hope for. There's yeah. tra- trailer moments, you know, those kind of things. To go back, God <laughs> forgives it very well. I mean, um, I'll I will be done with the movie in mid-November, so I'm only here for a very few days, and then I'm going back to mix the film. Wow! 
and then it will be done in um, in November. And it's been a very joyous and fun experience. It was crazy to live in Bangkok, and um, um, I had took a little um, spin-off when I came back to do some Gucci campaigns and stuff mm. and um, so um, took my time to finish the film and now it's done mid-November and um, I'm very uh, I'm very very pleased with it Oh, good. Yeah, our uh, editor-in-chief, Mark, was he joined you we for a little while. We had a wonderful time with and Mark. And the stories he brought back, you know. <laughs> You're never quite sure with Mark, you know, how much to believe. But right. uh, <laughs> Whatever happens in Bangkok stays in Bangkok. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it was, um, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, it was, a, again, you know, like all my movies, you always pressured for time, but you make that your strength. You know, and you always run around trying to grab money here and there. Mm. Um, but I did have a very exper interesting experience in uh, in Asia because, um, I mean, budget-wise, I was so under pressure because I didn't have a lot of money for the expectations that I wanted to do with the film. Mm. And I just come off all the press tour and drive, and I knew exactly that I didn't want to do. I wanted to make something different. Because I think that's the fun part is making mm. something different yeah. than what you did before. So, um, but one of the interesting, fun anecdotes was uh, I needed to buy off a lot of cops because we were shooting in Chinatown in Bangkok, and and this is a cash business industry a lot over there. So I didn't have money in the budget to basically pay for the protection or the the security, essentially what it is. Mm. So we could shoot in Chinatown for three days. So I needed cash. And um, there was a place called Hoi Hin, which is a little bit north of Bangkok. They were having the Hoi Hin Film Festival. And uh, I got word that they wanted to bring us in for like a red carpet walkthrough. Hmm. And they would pay us um, like, like $25,000 for that. And I said... Uh, how about you pay us $100,000? <laughs> and they were like, okay. <laughs> because I needed the money to pay off all the um, the cops. Wow. And so I, uh, I went to Hoi Hin, and we did the red carpet, and I went into a hotel room, and somebody met me with a bag of cash. Now, I don't know if you ever <laughs> saw $100,000 $100, in Thai currency. <laughs> But it was really interesting, and I had this decision that I'd never, I'd never counted so much money in my life. <laughs> so now was the time. <laughs> so you know, I said, "All right, let me count it." So I said, "One, two, three, four, and it, the whole experience of counting a hundred thousand dollars. And in the end, it was like, "Well, hang on, there's only ninety thousand." And they go, yeah, but 10% is taxes. It's like, you motherfucker. <laughs> what are you going to do? So wow. I had to drive back with $90,000 in cash from Hoi Hin to Bangkok. That's guerrilla filmmaking, yeah. isn't it? Right there. <laughs> to pay off the security, off the security yeah, people. <laughs> but Thailand was wonderful. It was a wonderful industry. It's a very good film community they have in Bangkok. It was just a really crazy experience. And... Um, yeah, I'm just, it's, it, I'm very pleased and uh, you'll see it next year. Excellent. Lovely. Thank you very much for coming in and talking to us about Pressure, which is out today. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, movie news time. What barely topical tidbits are we discussing this week? Nick, let's start with you. Taken 3. Taken 2 has been a huge hit, not just here in the UK, but over in the US and I'm, I'm guessing all over the world. And uh, despite Liam Neeson saying on this very podcast... Even Albania. <laughs> I'm not sure how it's done in Albania. Does it get really? I'd like to know what the Albanians make of it, to be honest. Um, but, there are many left, are there? <laughs> <laughs> but despite saying on this very podcast that, you know, he couldn't see how they could possibly be do another Taken. Yeah. Uh, Liam Neeson <laughs> and everyone, I guess, has signed up to do Taken 3. Have they signed up yet? Or is it, is well, I'm assuming it, they wouldn't the announce it unless they'd gone to him and, and you know, asked him yeah. if he's going to be in it. You can't do Taken 3. I imagine Liam Fox Neeson. called him up and said... We know who you are. We know what you want. If it's money you're looking for, well, we have a truckload of it. Would you, would you like some? The big question is, 
what is going to be taken this time? Because his daughter's been taken, his wife has been taken, and he has been taken. So who is left to be taken? Stu. Who's Stu? Sandra Berkeley's character. Right. <laughs> Maybe that's why we didn't see him in the last film. He was being taken. We didn't know it at the time, but he was being taken. Or I'd like to see... Um, well, I'd like to see a return to form, frankly. Right. Uh, I think I wrote this week that if, if anyone should be taken, it should be Olivier Megaton, the guy <laughs> I directed uh, Taken 2. Um, what, the last action hero kind of meta? Well, just, just taken away from the set, <laughs> so he can't do any more damage. That would be my main thing. Um, I think I loved the first Taken. I really didn't like Taken 2 very much. I liked it more than you guys, I think, initially when I saw it, but the more I think about it, it it's a bit of a travesty, sadly. But Taken 3, I'd like to see return to form. Uh, so maybe we could even get um, Brian Mills' mates who show up at the beginning of every movie and do absolutely nothing. <laughs> I just play golf in this one. Um, maybe they can actually come in in a sort of Expendables-type way and be be killed off, giving him the, the motive for revenge. They could be taken. They could be taken. It's either them or he the Albanians. He wouldn't bother getting them back, frankly. <laughs> they they would take them. useless. <laughs> yeah. Maybe someone takes a karaoke machine from the first one and he gets really angry about it. And Liam Neeson's just this. Maybe he gives her away. It could become, it could segue into a rom-com scenario. It could be called <laughs> Given. And it's at a wedding. He's got to give his daughter away. He's not sure about... Taking up the aisle. It's an interesting sort of franchise, isn't it? Because it didn't... They hadn't for a moment think, thought it was going to end up as a franchise. It started as a straight-to-DVD scenario. They barely thought scenario. it was going to be one movie. Yeah. And, you know, it's unlike, you know, Hollywood movies, they try and launch a franchise with a film and hope for the best. This one sort of crept up on them. And they've, you know, one of the things that's interesting about it is they, they the first one was a 15, this one's a 12A, so they've kind of reined it in as an idea and yeah. ex- open their audience wider. So it's a little... Which is a shame. It's easy it? to be cynical about this one. Um, but, but I think so it was the brutality of the first movie, I think, that made it a success. The fact that this guy was basically punching and shooting innocent people uh, unexpectedly in the, in the attempt yeah. to get his daughter back. And the, and the second one loses all its edge. Also, and, and you know, I'm by no means the first person to point this out, they didn't give him a phone speech in Taken 2. No. For God's sake, give the guy a phone speech. That's what everyone remembers about the first film. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It makes you wonder whether the critics have any impact at all because everybody slammed it. I didn't read a single good review about this film anywhere. And yeah, it made more money in the UK in its first four days than the whole of Taken in its cinematic release. It's mm-hmm. made 55 million in the US in four days. I like uh, Kim Newman's idea, which she tweeted today, which is some kind of Luke Besson version of Avengers Assemble where uh, Brian Mills has to team up with Leon, Nikita and the Transporter. That's amazing. I'm on. Be amazing. That, yeah. <laughs> movie, hello. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, greatest movie Just ever think made. about it. One of them is dead. Right. The Euro Avengers. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be amazing. That'd be astonishing. The news story I've got is not my own news story. The news story I've got is from a man sitting opposite me. His name is Nick. He looks slightly oh, like Neil Edmonds. Oh, Nick. Right, yeah. <laughs> No, anyway, the story is essentially that John Spates, who uh, wrote uh, The Darkest Hour and also the first draft, the original draft of Prometheus, in a very frank, very interesting interview, though we say so ourselves, uh, with uh, Empire, (laughs) kind of explained what his original vision was. And some of the things he says in in the interview with with Nick is extraordinary. Like, there's one bit where he said that um, David, the android, would be stroking a facehugger kitten-like before he put it round Shaw's mouth while she was strapped up and rendered immovable, Mm. which is an amazing image, an incredible image. And the other one is uh, that in the Medpod scene, she was originally going to be trapped within the Medpod and all the carnage would be going on around her and she'd be just trapped in there kind of watching it all happen, which again is a fantastic idea. So a chest bursting during a sex scene chest bursting during a sex scene he calls it a bit messy filled with uh, subtext I expect mm. I imagine mm. yeah. I could see why that might not have lit studio executives eyeballs that is a lot of darkness wrapped up in all of that stuff well it was pretty well, dark in the, yeah Prometheus isn't exactly light it's, it's not you know taking up the aisle there is a giant space donut which is kind of funny but the rest <laughs> yeah, is pretty true. dark yeah it is absolutely but I think what you're talking about with the face hugging scene and the and the cold clinical David's character is never explicitly anything. He's he's you know his agenda is always kind of shroudy throughout. You have an inkling well, that he has this. He puts the he puts the drop of 
that stuff. He does, but it. even that is kind of, you're never quite no, but sure. He, I think he straight up murders Holloway. I, uh, I think I've yeah. said this before. He absolutely, he, he's slight up a Holloway and he takes revenge. No, also, and that's my reading of that. I might be wrong. but John Spate says that this isn't because he wants to kill her or he wants to harm anyone. It's because he thinks he's as good as the engineers. He is worthy of being part of this creator race. So his idea is a kind of experiment. Putting the face hugger on Shaw's face isn't because he wants her to die. He just wants to see what happens. It's purely clinical. But it sounds like it's much more ambiguous in the finished film than it would have been sure. had they made that draft and mm. you'd seen him being much more villainous. It sounds like a great draft, but ultimately Ridley Scott decided to move away from... Well, actually, yeah. I mean, in the interview, he says that it was actually Fox, not Ridley Scott. Well, I've heard Ridley pushed for that yeah. as well. I don't know. I'm just thinking, yeah, but uh, there's a difference between the reproductive cycle that the film's kind of playing into, the idea of creation, and, and what happens to John Hurt at the beginning of Alien, where it's very much a, a sort of predatorial host type of thing where it's removed from the stomach and burst through the chest rather than through the without getting all kind of biological but the machine clearly ties into the idea of aborting this thing in some way yeah so i guess maybe that was a thing i just trying to visualize that and i think it's staggering reading that interview is so fascinating some of the ideas that and also as an insight into the process within the studio and tom rothman at fox being very heavily involved throughout and and how the genesis of the thing from one to the other and mm. um, brilliant ideas i think in the original one definitely but i just had a difficult job kind of visualizing it some of that stuff in spade's script do fifield and milburn still get lost in a ship that they are mapping <laughs> presumably they're using apple maps <laughs> that's, that's the only possible explanation i can think of oh let's just keep it for a while. very good question and the bit, one of the bits that bugs me from the finished film is how they're terrified of everything and then suddenly <laughs> this, this horror this, you know I'm sure we've talked about this on the podcast when the film came out this, this cre- creepiest thing you've ever seen like comes up and starts hissing at them and they're like whoop it's yeah, clearly <laughs> an evil evil little bastard oh yeah hey it's yeah you'd be running for the uh, hills let's keep here amongst these death pods yeah, yeah. good idea maybe, maybe on does. set they were told oh it's going to be something really cute <laughs> and they were like oh right okay, but that they, makes sense. It, it was there on set they, they, they actually shot that they had an animatronic thing oh, like a sock puppet um, <laughs> it was Ridley Scott with a yeah. sub up. Come yeah, on, go pretend on. I'm evil. Oh yeah, I'm really evil. That's the worst Ridley Scott impression you'll ever hear in your entire life. Although I'm sure we can we can up the ante next week. Who knows? Uh, okay, brilliant. That, that's that's all the movie news that was out this week. That's everything. All wrapped up. There is no more movie news. Don't look at any other website. <laughs> this is it. Uh, coming up after this, we have an interview with Valerie Farris and Jonathan Dayton. Time for another interview now. Uh, Valerie Farris and Jonathan Dayton are the husband and wife directing team behind the Oscar-winning Little Miss Sunshine. They've taken a sweet time over a follow-up, six years to be precise, but they found it with Ruby Sparks, a whimsical tale of a writer who finds himself falling in love with his own creation when she comes to life all magically like. They came in to talk about the movie, written by Zoe Kazan, who also stars alongside her real-life partner, Paul Dano, to Ali, who handled them manfully on his own. Enjoy. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. So you're best known for directing Little Miss Sunshine, and now, of course, Ruby Sparks, but you're also known as music video directors. Uh, you've worked with The Spashing Pumpkins, Oasis, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Jane's Addiction. So my first question has to be, what was it like working with the Ramones? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's different now than it was then. <laughs> um, they, you know, they were like heroes of ours, so it was a really... F- we got to do two videos for the Ramones, and... Um, you know, we had actually met Joey Ramone when we were doing a show for MTV in the late eighties, mid to late eighties. So we had met Joey before, who, you know, this was just you know, there's only one Joey Ramone. There will never be another Joey Ramone. He was such an amazing guy. So um, you know, we just felt really lucky to get to work with them again and and to meet them in person, just yeah. to see Joey Ramone in person, you know, all of them. But um, we used to see Johnny around L.A. He lived in Los Angeles, so we'd see him now and then at parties and, and stuff. But but Joey, you know, just was so fun to just watch mm. perform and, yeah, and really be in the room person. with him. Yeah, really sweet guy. It's been six years since Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, how did the scriptwriter and star of Ruby Sparks, Zoe Kazan, persuade you to get back on the horse? Was she just at a party with her boyfriend, Paul, and dropped the script into your bag with a cupcake? <laughs> well, Yes, exactly that. <laughs> we, we'd stayed in touch with Paul, and um, he had 
brought Zoe over to our house, and so we knew them as a couple. And um, they actually approached us in a very formal way with the, the, the early draft of the film through the producers of Little Miss Sunshine, who they were working with. And, um, you know, we loved the script immediately and, and started work on a rewrite right away. And, and um, you know, what was so great is that Zoe was not only a good writer, she was also a good rewriter. So as we worked to kind of find the film that we had in our heads, she was amazing just finding new ways to, you know, reinvent the story. She's, yeah, she was not at all precious with the material, which is rare for, especially for a first screenplay, you know. She just, uh, she, every, she turned stuff back to us and it felt like it was, you know, part of the original script. So she's, that's a real gift. So is she the definition of a good collaborator, i.e. she allows you to redo it all yourself? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's what a good collaborator does. Now, it has been six years, uh, as I mentioned, where have you been all our lives? Or rather, um, where have you been for that particular time period of our lives? <laughs> <laughs> well, Is that all your life? Are you that? You're only six years old. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we started working on films immediately upon finishing Little Miss Sunshine. But it, for various reasons, none of the projects we worked on were really ready to make. Um, it's it takes so much energy to put together a film. It's two years of your life, and um, it we just didn't feel they were finished. And and we got the script for Ruby Sparks, and we immediately responded. And the rewrite process went so fast, and and it was so satisfying. So this was the first film in six years that we felt, you know, was was ready. And, you know, Little Miss Sunshine took us five years to actually get made. So I do think films just sometimes take time. Mm. Ruby Sparks happened actually more quickly, but the other films, you know, they just, they take, I think it's good to spend time on a film. So I don't actually, you know, think six years is that long between films. I mean, we, we I, I would love to do it faster. <laughs> we want to do but, it faster, but, but, but the, the, you know. There's a lot of pe- directors who take that much time, you know, because it is so much work, you just don't want to go out there with something that you don't believe in. You know? Well, I mean, we all go to movies and, and wonder, how the hell did they think this was going to be good? And I can tell you, those signs are evident early on. very early. Yeah. And and we had projects that we loved and, and could eventually be great films, but they're not there yet. And rather than sort of gamble and just start production when things aren't really fully realized we just prefer to to wait you must have been pitched dozens of projects after the success of little miss sunshine what was the weirdest thing that was sent to you oh, oh boy God, you know they weren't so weird as maybe just weird for us i mean without naming names we we were offered some of the big franchise movies and and it just, you know, our films, we hope, can reach a large audience, but they're very personal, and, and most of those films are like running a big corporation. I mean, you there's so much invested. There's so many people who want a say in the process, and that's just not the way we can work. We did get one um, offer right after Sundance that was pretty interesting. Oh. We've never really talked about it. I don't yeah. know if no, it's we okay. Should, we could. Um it was the opportunity to do a, a film with Robert Redford and Paul Newman right after Sundance. So we actually met with Robert Redford at Sundance after our film had premiered there. And um, so that was we, we played around with that for a little while and yeah. <laughs> and it didn't happen. But that was that was a pretty shocking like that was one where we called our parents immediately and said, guess yeah. what? Was it going to be another Butch and Sundance kind of thing, or a or a buddy comedy film, maybe? Well, that's what, that's we, what we wanted. wanted. But I think maybe Robert, for various reasons, didn't really see it that way. And it's and the other the other tricky <laughs> thing is just that um, there's certain rules, and we, we you know. You, to work with an actor who's also a director is a tricky thing. And he's and the producer. Yeah. Um, Although we did sort of break that on We this. broke that on, on Ruby Sparks. But, yeah. but um, 
Yeah, it, it became clear that we didn't want to make the same movie, so we, yeah. we parted ways. But but it was exciting thinking about... We did have fun thinking about it, and it, it, it could have been a fun film, actually. Yeah, I mean, Butch Cassidy is one of the first films I remember seeing as a child, and, you know, I love those guys, so... What was the pitch, if you don't mind me asking? It was a, based on a, a book called A Walk in the Woods by Bill Bryson... And um, it was about these two guys um, hiking the Appalachian Trail. Um, but they were, you know, middle-aged. Um, and so we, and they're making a big deal about walking the Appalachian Trail, but we thought that they should they should actually cheat and not walk the whole Appalachian Trail and take a taxi or something. That So, you know, they because it's too hard to actually do it. So we thought the part of the, the you know, what they they pull off is this um, pretending that they walked it, and and Redford wasn't into the idea yeah. of them. Uh, I mean, Redford's in amazing shape, but uh, but uh, you know the the idea of the two of them actually walking that distance. Because well, Newman was like eighty. And what about the camera crew? You know, how would they manage it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have never walked the Appalachian Trail, but there are bears, and, and you know. It's a little dangerous. Isn't one of the first rules of filmmaking, no bears? No, no bears, bears on no set. Bears. We don't do bears. <laughs> I know it's overused, uh, often incorrectly, um, but the word meta could be applied to Ruby Sparks here. Uh, it's about a man who writes about the perfect woman on his typewriter. She comes to life and his words continue to change her life, for better, for worse. Were you keen to watch previous films that have attempted to do things like this? Or was it all about doing it your way it's a it's a good question and you know you try not to overwhelm yourself with what's been done before and at the same time you don't want to be completely naive and and repeat something that be, that's you know a classic scene from some other movie so we did make a point to watch certain films there's an old twilight zone episode that's reminiscent where a guy speaks into a dictaphone um there's obviously stranger than fiction and, but, you know, we also looked at films where we thought that were successful in kind of pulling off um, this kind of magical realism in a very real um, and matter-of-fact way that, so we, like, we watched Purple Rose of Cairo, which, you know, in the way that Woody Allen treats this sort of magic, you know, just absolute, it's just part of life. It's not... Very matter-of-fact. No, yeah. People just walk right off the screen and you just accept it immediately. And so, you know, we looked at places where we thought it was done successfully or Midnight in Paris for that matter but that was out after we had I think while we were shooting or something but you know it, so we look at examples where it's working or maybe where what we want to avoid you know like weird science or you know <laughs> there are just certain things where you, you sort of are um, they're helpful but ultimately when you go to make the film I think you try to put all of it out of your mind and create from the story that you know and the, let the writing inspire you and the Ruby Sparks is uh, an incredible supporting cast. Uh, you've got Antonio Banderas, Annette Benning, Steve Coogan, Elliot Gould. Were these guys that you'd long want to work with and just kind of ticked off a shortlist? Well, it's funny you should say that because we do have, you know, a long list of people we would love to work with. And whenever there's a role that seems appropriate, we obviously jump on the opportunity. So, you know, Steve Coogan is someone we've loved forever and he was the only person we could imagine in this role. And um, as a total sleazebag, I should point out. Well, I, you know, I, 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 uh, but he does that well. He and and you know he makes a lovable funny. Sleazebag. Yeah, I mean he's he's just he's has there's an authenticity you know that is. But he he knows that well. He's not that guy, but. Um, but we just, um, he really loved the script. And then there was a moment where he didn't feel like he could do it in his schedule. And we did really beg him. He was the one person I feel like we we really yeah. had to beg because he was coming from far away and, you know, flew in just for three days to do it. But we, we really love him. And Elliot Gould is another person who we just, you know, have admired for many our whole lives, you know, and, and he meeting him was uh just half of it was just getting to meet him. <laughs> but um, he was so perfect for the part. I mean, he is kind of like a natural-born therapist. He's yeah. a very good listener. And Alia Shawkat from yeah. Arrested Development. I no, she's her. she is so lovely if and anything, so she's funny. Just, she's underused. Yeah. She's just, she's, yeah, funny, beautiful, I think. And, um, you know, she, she makes her 
she, for a short part, she makes her presence known, you know. But there, and you know, Annette Bening and Antonio Banderas were sort of these kind of crazy ideas. We thought, well, why not? Let's just see if they would do it. And they both said yes. So, I have a very particular question uh, from my friend Phil, who can't make it today, and apologizes for that. Uh, it's this. What other songs were in contention for the final scene in Little Miss Sunshine? Uh, the one where Abigail Breslin's Olive dances to Rick James' Super Freak. Oh, uh, good question. So funny. Yeah. Well, that was, it was originally supposed to be She's a Peach by Prince. And that was just not an easy song to dance to. Plus, you can't license a Prince song for a movie. It's impossible. Um, so that was sort of out um, before we even shot it. And then we, we filmed it to ZZ Top's Give Me All Your Lovin'. And then when we, we finished shooting and started cutting, it just didn't it work. It didn't have the energy. It was just this kind of, you know. We, we were freaked out because we thought, oh, my God, we're going to have to reshoot this. But then um, a friend, Ann Litt, who was our music supervisor and is a big DJ in Los Angeles, she said, try Super Freak. And we were, we're like, like, no, oh, that's the most... God ridiculous so on, on the, the nose <laughs> like it'll that'll never that would be an embarrassment she but of just course try it and so, so we took the edit of the current edit of the dance and then we played it just separately it you know kind of sunk it up and it was so obviously like the only choice and then we had to really fight to get it because it wasn't she it was probably we spent more money on that song but, than any other but, music you know movie. it's at a totally different time cadence than other songs and so you'll notice that all shots you know, last three seconds, or if someone claps, their first clap is in sync, and their second clap is out of yeah. sync. And yeah, but but it 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 made the scene. It 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 just worked perfectly. There was no other song really, and then we had to do a remix of it just to get it to kind of just work in it. Yeah. yeah, so it was it was a very but that was the critical uh, music choice for yeah. the in, that made the movie. It was pinned on that working or not working. So, and finally, will we have to wait another six years to see your next film? Yes. Yeah. No yeah, problem. Yeah, we, yeah. We've we'll given up promising six years. Yeah. Yeah. Sooner, hopefully. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks for coming down. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. So, thanks again. Thank, Thank you. you. Interesting uh, tidbit there. So, I, I said they they taken six years essentially to find the next film, but they hadn't. Well, they'd found plenty of films. They'd been offered, as, as, as they mentioned, a whole bunch. One of them being what I thought was pretty fascinating, the last Paul Newman and Robert Redford movie, which would have been an adaptation of Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods, right. which genuinely made my ears leak. Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe that they were saying that. And my, my mind started racing, and I'm still trying to work out what it would have been like. Shooting in the Appalachian a Trail would have been impossible in the first place, but to have those two together for one last kind of Butch and Sundance... You know, it, it just kind of boggles the mind. But they were very close to doing it. It just didn't work out in the end. Um, but no, two absolutely lovely people. Very pleased to have met them. Very, very good indeed. Okay, so it's time to talk about their film because you have money and we have lots of lovely cinemas in this country. And you can spend money in those cinemas in order to see something we call films. So we're going to help you decide what to splurge on this weekend. So we're going to start off with... Let's start with Ruby Sparks. Why not? Why the hell not? So I love Little Miss Sunshine. How does this one compare? Alistair. How does it compare? It compares well. It's not quite the same kettle of fish. It's a similar indie feel to it, so it's not going to suddenly be a sci-fi horror bursting out of nowhere. It's the story of, as you say, a young man who is a kind of a school prodigy. He's a teenager, and he writes his Catcher in the Rye at the age of like 13 or 14, and that totally changes his life. Uh, he's uh, internationally renowned and everyone loves him. Unfortunately, he hits writer's block and doesn't know quite where to go next. He does a, a few short stories, but then he starts dreaming of the perfect girl. He literally dreams her. Then he starts writing about the, this perfect girl. Then, in a kind of magic realism thing, she comes to life. She's in his kitchen, eating his cereal, smiling. Uh, that's the beautiful Zoe Kazan, as you say, the real-life girlfriend of Paul Dano. And then, as you can imagine, things get a little more complicated because there's a certain amount of power to be had when you use your magic typewriter, it's never explicitly said <laughs> to be magic, to say, she speaks French. She suddenly does the things that he says she should do in the typewriter. There's fun to be had with that, but it's not all kind of giggles. There, There is a... 
serious undercurrent. And yeah, it's a good film. It's very interesting. I think it's a brave move from them because they could have done another kind of more jaunty, cuddlier film like Little Miss Sunshine was. But um, yeah, I think it may divide some people. If you don't like this kind of twee indie twonk, yep. and I'm saying that you know firmly tongue-in-cheek, um, it may may ruffle feathers. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. It's a, it's a great setup and it's, it does go to some quite dark places. I did think it suffered a little bit from overquirk. You know, not quite as bad as Seeking a Friend for the End of the World where Steve Carell's playing his harmonica all the time. But, <laughs> yeah, it's got Antonio Banderas turns up as a guy who's making his own furniture and, uh, you know, characters like that I find really irritating. Um, but it is an interesting... Uh, film that does does some quite good stuff with the setup. I, I didn't like the ending at all, but we can't get into that. Yeah, it does go to dark places. I'm glad that it does, but it's it's very interesting. If you're in any way intrigued, check it out. But yeah, this is a four star movie with a couple of provisos and some great um, performances from the two leads. Um, I love the both of them. I think uh, Zoe Kazan is going to be the next big thing, hopefully anyway. Steve Coogan also makes a great appearance as a very sleazy man. Yes, a cameo. I wouldn't say cameo, <laughs> but yeah, he's there. And he's great. guest appearance. Guest appearance. <laughs> I actually quite like that. Going back to that, I quite like the the concept now of guest appearances in movies. Yeah, because you get them in TV shows all the time. Uh, there should be an applause track. Every that, should be, yeah. that should be how you know whether it's a guest appearance Special or a cameo. Guest if people star. applaud. It's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Steve Coogan is is, is funny in it. Uh, you know, he's he's done that kind of thing before, but he, he nobody does sleazy, quite. intellectual, quite like uh, Coogan. Or indeed, Phil. I'm not answering that. <laughs> Sleazy intellectual. I wasn't sure you'd I'm heard not it. Not an intellectual. Honest. I don't think it was a question. <laughs> oh, I see. I saw what you did there, Phil. I saw it. I yeah. liked it. Yeah. All right. Okay. So four stars for uh, Ruby Sparks. Uh, let's move on now to the other film that we've been talking about a little bit this week, which is the Nicholas Winding Refn produced Pusher, starring the Welsh bloke from Coupling and uh, Agnes Dean. That's right. Being, yeah, uh, the British it, supermodel. It's not her acting debut. She's been on stage. She's done some smaller stuff in films, but it's her biggest role to date. Uh-huh. And it could lead into a pusher too. The rumor is that she's going to be playing her character. I mean, what happened with the original Nicholas Wine and Riffin tr- trilogy of pusher yeah. films was that they followed different characters, so it wasn't a clear sort of straight narrative. Her character is not peripheral. She's the kind of she's a sort of lap dancing escort girl love interest to um, Richard Coyle's Frank Frank if you can imagine Carlito's way where Al Pacino comes out but he's not turning over a new leaf he just he's going to go on a massive coat binge he's going to beat he's going to beat Sean Penn with a baseball bat he's going to get amongst it he's going to go around to Paul Kay's house and extort cash out of him um, the, this is the guy he's not there's no redemption story in this film and there's no one that's particularly likeable Agnes right. Dean does actually I quite liked her performance she brings some heart to it and uh, it needs it because it's a very bleak world that it sets us into so what's the plot the plot is um Coyle is basically, as I say, he's he's trying to get out of a predicament, which is that he owes um, some very tough-looking Serbian dudes. Zlatko Buric, and you'll have to forgive my pronunciation, reprises his role in the original as this amazingly voice. He's got this really dark, kind of Eastern European Balkan voice, and he uses it as a sort of a weapon of, of a threat to, uh, to Frank, who owes him cash. He owes him about, I don't know, 40 grand... Um, for a drug deal that's gone wrong and he gets him he's like Frankie I need this money otherwise he's not tried Wonga.com he hasn't tried Wonga.com because of the interest rates interest rates are actually no that's that's litigious I can't say that (laughs) (laughs) but his interest rates are usurious should we say so Coil the longer this thing goes on and it's set over a week so Monday come Wednesday he owes 50 grand it's going up the world's getting he's taking a lot of cocaine Um, and it's just a kind of a tear around London set in the underworld It, it it's got a European sort of aesthetic to it, so it's quite stylish and it's got a great orbital soundtrack. Yes. But it's hard to it's hard to love anyone or care for anyone enough. And the reason I mentioned Carlito's way is that you always care about Carlito, and you kind yeah. of you know it does that clever thing of starting at the end and working backwards, which is ballsy. This film doesn't really deliver any great surprises. If you've seen the original, I think that was about 16 years ago and Wyndham Riffin's moved on a lot since then and he's developed this sort of drive this cool aesthetic as well this film kind of apes that a little bit with Luis Prieto I think is the director mm-hmm. I don't really know his work so so much but I think he's slightly straightjacketed by the fact that as I say there's no one really likeable or sympathetic particularly we've given it three stars it wasn't my favourite film 
of the week. But uh, how's Richard got, Coyle? Because he's good. Actually, he's, yeah, I thought he was great in Coupling. Uh, I know that seems really weird, but it's interesting to see him make a transition to films because he's got this. He's got Grabbers, which I can't wait to see. The Irish alien sci-fi comedy about people who have to get drunk in order to avoid an alien invasion. Yeah, uh, he's got that coming up ne- uh, next year. So that sounds great. It does sound great. And he was in Prince of Persia as well. Don't forget. He, he was, was. In, we can't forget he that. Wasn't no. it. Well, that was my thing, and I asked him about it when he came in. That the, the Brook, I just wondered if Jerry Bruckheimer was a massive coupling fan because he cast Jack Davenport in uh, in Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> and he looked at me like I was a moron. But I thought maybe I don't know. I thought maybe Bruckheimer when he's finished when he's finished green lighting these epic, he just goes home, kicks back with a bit of bit of sort of suburban London male banter. Yeah. I think Bruckheimer would be interested in the rice to taking up the aisle. I think, he'd, I think he'd enjoy the it. Aisle. He would. With um, Jack Davenport suits. and Richard Coyle <laughs> together as the the, the, the stag. Well, they're uh, both well. In, in all seriousness, man. they're both very lovable screen presences in in coupling and and very warm. And there's a lot of good work. He shed, he sheds all of that. I think quite deliberately in this film. He's very he's not a likable guy in any way, shape, or form. And the love intro, the love the relationship with Agnes Dean's character is very cold. He won't even really kiss her. So. Who would kiss Agnes I, Dean? Yeah, well, mm, she's a married woman. She so is a married woman. Let's one person. punched in the chops by Giovanni Ribisi. Exactly. Let's hope he treats her better than Scarlett Johansson in Lost in Translation. <laughs> uh, indeed. And of course, that's... Is that Letitia's? I'm not sure. Let's move on. Uh, three stars for Pusher. Three stars for Thank Pusher. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, another major release this week is On the Road, Walter Salas's uh, adaptation of Jack Kerouac's classic novel, which stars Garrett Hedlund, Sam Riley, and... Uh, Kristen Stewart Nick what do you think of this one yeah it's it's okay it's nothing to get hugely excited about to be honest I was a huge fan of uh, Walter Salas's The Motorcycle Diaries when that came out I guess almost 10 years ago now yeah and I was hoping for a, a, a similarly kind of a, a gripping kind of road te- you know road trip tale and uh, I think they struggle a bit they're, they're trying to be so reverential to the book to this kind of hallowed text on the road um, and it just comes off as a bit it just hasn't got a lot of life to it. Self-indulgence. It's, it's fine. Um, tepid. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. It's a Tepid is, is a bit harsh, but um, I, I, I saw it at Cannes. It was far from my favourite film there. We, no. gave it, we gave it three stars, I believe. So. What about Case to You? Case to You, she's so not in Twilight right now. It's Case to You, as you've never seen her before. Well, it is. She is trying to drastically shake up her screen image in this. She, I hear there's anything she shakes up. There's a lot of nudity on her part, not Sam Riley's. There's kind of a go-for-broke, kind of bohemian spirit to the three leads, and they just kind of get their going for it. I actually uh, really liked Garrett Hedlund's performance. I didn't like him much in Tron Legacy when that came out, but he's he's really good in this mm. and as the main character. Um, and yeah, I, it's decent. But you know, fa- if you're a huge fan of the book, go and check it out. But uh, is the book all that adaptable into a film? I just can't imagine it working. It's, it's very bitty. It sounds like I've I've read the book. I haven't seen the film, so I couldn't really comment on how well. But no, I, I mean, I, it was like the Rum Diary earlier in the year. Just didn't see that as a film particularly, and I thought you'd be working really hard to kind of impose any form of cinematic structure on it. I mean, it was written in a bit of a brain dump famously by Jack Kerouac over a period of days on one manuscript and yeah I don't think it had any kind of innate structure particularly it's more about this Dean Moriarty and they kind of go in there and there's a lot of and a lot of the the language of the book is very um, of its time as well I don't know how that's translated to the script they talk a lot about hip cats as I remember and bebop and all of that kind of stuff yeah all that stuff's in there they're, it's it's a very faithful adaptation, is, right. so they're they're trying hard to get it all up on the screen. The original but, text, I believe, the the Kerouac manuscript is on display in London uh, yeah. over the next coming uh, next couple of months. Maybe at the British Museum. I'm thinking I should probably have looked that up. But anyway, you can Google it. <laughs> it's, it's, it is on display. Uh, while we're on the subject of cameos, Viggo Mortensen has a fantastic cameo in this film. There you go. Is it a cameo or is it a special guest appearance? Uh, no one applauds, so I'm going to say cameo. <laughs> no one applauds. Is, is this because he was on? He was in the road, and he wanted to be part of on the road. <laughs> it's, it's contractual. He has to be an all road based. He's now being CG'd into the road to Wellville <laughs> and all the Bob Hope Bing Crosby films <laughs> as well. Uh, cool. Three stars for that. Uh, also out this week is a two star double whammy of Hit and Run which is, well, pretty much everything you'd imagine a film starring, written and directed by Dax Shepard would be. And uh, we've also got Hotel Transylvania, which is the sadly generic Adam Sanderized directorial debut of animation legend Gendy Tartakovsky, uh, chewed up by the machine somewhat sadly. Uh, best wait for Frank Amini next week. Uh, speaking of which, join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by Frank Amini stars Martin Short and Catherine O'Hara 
sneak preview. They were a blast. Plus a director of Beasts of the Southern Wild, Mr. Ben Seitlin. And they may seek her here, there and everywhere in the Paranormal Activity series. But Katie Featherstone will be dropping in on next week's podcast to talk about the franchise's phenomenal success ahead of Paranormal Activity 4. Hope she doesn't just come in and watch us sleep because after all we do all live in one big house together. Uh, Right, that is it for this week. Until next week, it is goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. It is goodbye from Phil. Au revoir. Oh, good. I like Mm -hmm. that. Uh, It's goodbye from Ali. Bye. (laughs) And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.